good morning and a, a warm welcome to you all, whether you're uh, gathered with us uh, here in person or whether you're joining us online. A warm welcome to you, and it's certainly great to uh, be with you for the second week in our study of the book of Revelation. And so if you have a, a Bible and uh, can turn to Revelation chapter 2, or if you uh, certainly at least take the insert that you'll find in your worship folder, I think there's been two versions floating around this morning, so one is correct and one is not, and you may find out, uh, you'll find out in a moment which one you have, but uh, it'd be great if you could turn to Revelation uh, chapter 2. Uh, last week, if uh, you weren't with us, uh, what we did was we looked at Revelation as it's introduced in chapter 1, and uh, we talked about the kind of book that it is, because Revelation can weird a lot of people out, and so we looked at how the Apostle John describes the book uh, that he's writing. And uh, he says it's an apocalypse, which was a very unique uh, and specific kind of writing that was used at that time in history, but it's not used uh, today. And, and therefore, that's the source of so much of the confusion that surrounds uh, the book today. Uh, so it's an apocalypse. Uh, in some ways, it's also a witness uh, testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy uh, declaring the word of God. And it's a letter written to specific churches in a specific context at a specific moment in time. And then having been introduced to the nature of the book as a whole in the opening verses of chapter 1, we were then introduced to uh, what John describes as one like the Son of Man, which is a stunning graphic picture of the glory of Jesus revealed. And now this week what happens is this same Jesus writes seven letters uh, to seven specific uh, churches in Asia Minor. And the seven churches will all show up on the map for uh, our online viewers. Sorry for those in person you miss out. Uh, and these seven uh, churches, as we'll discover, are all very different. And some of them are doing really well and they get no criticism at all. Uh, it's all commendation from Jesus. Others of them are a total disaster. I mean, like things are going awfully spiritually, a, a real mess. And the beauty about Jesus speaking to these seven churches is that although they are written to specific congregations in what we would now call Turkey, they also represent the fullness of the experience of the church through history. And so you and I uh, might read the seven letters as I, in a minute, I'm going to read all seven of them. And, and as we're going to read them, you might think, wow, that one sounds very much like Redeemer. Or that one sounds very much like this church that I used to go to. But if we were to show the seven letters to our brothers and sisters in, say, Yemen or in China, they, they might say, oh, no, that, I don't relate to that one at all. I relate to this one. That's our world. That's our context. And so what Jesus does by addressing these seven very different churches is in a way to speak to all of us and to provide us all with a composite picture of what the Christian look, life should look like, whatever our context. And despite the very different contexts they're in and the very different ways in which the church needs to respond to Jesus, there's actually, we, we could summarize all seven letters with one word. And in some ways, we could summarize the whole me message of Revelation in one word. And it's one word which comes with an accompanying symbol. And it's a Greek word and symbol that you all know. 
and some of you, in fact, may even have it on your clothing uh, right now. Some of you may be sitting here or, or viewing online, and you have got this word or this symbol uh, on your cap or on your shoes or your t-shirt, and it is the Greek word Nike. Nike, nikau, is the Greek verb for conquer or overcome or to be victorious. And it's a word that obviously, the, I mean, the company has used to market their stuff, but it's a Greek word that, that has you know, drawn from passages and imagery very much like this in which it describes what it is to be a conqueror, an overcomer, a victory, a victor. And, and actually, interestingly, in the book of Revelation, it's not just the, the word uh, Nike essential to the whole story, but... Also, even Nike's famous swoosh somehow captures a bit of what the Christian life looks like. Because the, the swoosh starts here, and it goes down very early. And often, the, the Christian life begins very uh, early with, with, by going down. It actually sometimes begins almost with a death of sorts. And sometimes, literally, people uh, end up dying. But then there's this turning point, and the Christian life goes up, up, and up, and on forever. In the, to the future. And there's something of that in this book, some, and, and something of that in these seven letters, that the Christian life starts by going down, if you like, but then it goes up, up, and on, and on forever. And what Jesus is doing in these letters is telling seven very different churches what the Christian life, a, a victorious Christian life, a conquering, overcoming life, what it looks like. Now, it will take me nearly 10 minutes to read it, okay? So this is a much, much longer passage than uh, we usually read here. And I'm saying that to prepare you, want you to be able to, to, to get comfortable, I suppose, but also to be ready to pay attention uh, and not allow your attention to, to wander as I read it because these are the words of Jesus to his church. And so I'm going to read Revelation chapters 2 and 3 beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and aren't, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you haven't grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't fear 
what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. And no one knows that the one who receives it, except the one who receives it. And to uh, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter work exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation until, unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the church will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who don't hold this teaching, who haven't Learn what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself, as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will gather and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I haven't found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who haven't soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. 
I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and haven't denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews and aren't, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world. To those to try those who dwell on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich, I'm pro I've prospered, and I need nothing but realizing that you are wretched and wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to, salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I said it was a long text, but in many ways it's addressing one question which is, what does the victorious Christian life look like? What do overcomers, uh, conquerors, Nikes, what do they have in common? And in some circles, they, the answer to that question would seem fairly obvious. In some circles, the answer would involve things that would look like victory in the secular world as well, right? So a lot of Christians might answer the question, the victorious Christian life looks pretty much like any other victorious life. That is, it involves material wealth, good reputation, safety, happy children, physical health, uh, long life. You know, it would involve all the worldly markers of success. And none of those things are bad, right? Uh, the, I mean, the gifts. God in his kindness has given me all of those gifts at some point. In fact, most of the time in my life. Uh, so, so I'm very grateful. And many of us, we receive good gifts like that. But according to Jesus, they do not represent spiritual health. They do not demonstrate that we are overcoming or conquering or victorious in the Christian life at all. In fact, 
of these seven churches, the two that Jesus commends the most, has the highest praise for, doesn't correct at all, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They are the two churches that he describes as troubled, poor, slandered, imprisoned, and powerless. The two churches that Jesus regards as winning are the ones that the world would regard as losing. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. He says to Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander that you're facing, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So in other words, the church in Smyrna, in worldly terms, is facing tribulation, poverty, slander, and imprisonment. And Jesus is saying, you're rich. I've got nothing against you. You're fantastic. I love you guys. You are so effective. Philadelphia, he says to them, I know you have but little power, but you have kept my word. Well done. That's what Jesus says to him. You don't have the, all of the things that the world might regard as impressive, but you have kept my word. You are faithful. Well done. And on the other hand, the two churches that Jesus rebukes the most strongly, and to be honest, some of us, as I was reading, uh, reading this, some of us maybe were thinking, I didn't know Jesus spoke to, 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 to churches like this, but, but Jesus has tough words um, uh, sometimes that he speaks to his church and 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 the two churches he rebuked the most strongly sardis and laodicea are the ones who look the most successful in worldly terms do you notice that he says to sardis chapter 3 verse 1 i know your works you have a reputation of being alive but you're dead wake up he says Everybody thinks you guys are great, and yet I know under the surface that that's not so. You guys are dead. He says to Laodicea, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And I think that must make us stand back, does it not, and say, okay, so if the churches that the world thinks are doing badly are doing great in the sight of the Savior. And the churches that, that, that think they're doing well and that the world thinks are doing well are doing badly in the sight of the Savior. We've got to be careful not to measure the success of our own individual lives and of our churches in worldly ways. You know, over the years... Um, I can think of not a few very successful uh, megachurch pastors. I mean, two um, come to mind immediately and specifically, both of them enormously impressive men, right? You know, rich, bright, clever. Both of them sold many, I'm sure, tens of thousands of books. Very successful, very engaging, very funny, very stylish. Handsome as well, actually, as it happens. And yet a, a number of years on, and I look back, and actually both of those men, it, it was easy to be wowed by both of them in many ways. And I look back now, and both of them have lost their churches. One of the churches collapsed in disgrace. The other left the ministry altogether, does something completely different. And communities of people, a whole trail of people left behind going, what on earth was all that about? And these very worldly markers of success, it's very easy to think, well, you guys, you guys are successful. Years on, it turns out, well, maybe not in the way that I thought. 
And by contrast, the individual in church history with the greatest legacy of all the church planters and church leaders that there ever have been was a single man who had a very checkered past, no money, a boring speaking style. I mean, the Apostle Paul was so boring that somebody fell asleep uh, during one of his sermons and fell out of the window and died. I mean, that's never happened to me that I know of. And he had a track record of continuous persecution. And so in many ways, he would be like the lowest of the low in worldly terms, but God used him mightily to plant churches all over the world. And many of the people that the world might esteem, and that I might esteem, actually, the fruit years later is not there. The victorious Christian life does not necessarily come with worldly signs of success. In fact, it often comes with worldly signs of failure. It's like the swoosh. It looks like it's going down. But actually, we know that after a turning point, it goes up and up and on and on forever. And so that is what the overcoming Christian life isn't. That's what the victorious Christian life isn't. We, we've, we've got to be careful not to read the, the, the Christian life as if it's measurable in the same way that victorious lives in the world would be. So that's what it isn't. What then is it to live a victorious Christian life? What, what does Jesus say it looks like to be a conqueror, to be an overcomer, a Nike? Well, if we take the seven letters together, I think Jesus actually gives us a, com- com- a composite picture because he gives us seven things that it means that the church Uh, it means for the church to be seen as victorious. And there's one specifically focused on in each of the letters. And so the desire to overcome, to be victorious, it's a good desire. Jesus wants us to have that desire. But you say, how do I do it? Well, well, there are some things that it, here are some things that it looks like depending on the kind of church you're in and the kind of stage you're in. But all of them will be required of us. And the first one you find in the first church, the church in Ephesus, is simply love. What does victorious Christian life, a victorious Christian life look like? It looks like love. And Jesus says to them, all of these things you're doing are okay. You're doing well, actually, but you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the, wor- the, do the works you did at first. In other words, here is a church commended for her hard work, her perseverance, her defense of the faith even in the face of heresy, and yet here is a church which has lost the heart of a bride. She's no longer a bride in love. If you like, she's, she's Martha being really busy for Jesus instead of Mary simply treasuring communion with him more than anything else. And Jesus is very tenderly calling them back to the way that they loved him when they first met him. I don't know if you've had the experience. Some of us have. Some of us haven't. Of just what's like, you know, when you, you know, you uh, come to, you know, fall in love with someone for the first time. And, and much of the time, it, the way it looks and feels is you just do very, very ordinary things with them you just want to be with them all the time. You talk to them as much as you can. You phone them, and you finish a conversation with them, and you put the phone down, and then you start texting straight away, or you call them back to arrange time to see them. Again, you want to see them all the time. You just want to talk with them. You want to, you know, want to talk with them, sometimes aimlessly. You know, just 
just sometimes spending time walking, walking in silence. One of my favorite things about uh, older couples uh, very much in love is they can just walk for miles just hardly saying anything. I, I think there's, this, there's a desire when, when, when you deeply love someone just to waste time in their presence, to walk, to talk, to eat, to just be together. And I think Jesus, and I don't want to romanticize the, the relationship with Jesus. Don't mishear me here. But I think that can show us some ways in which being invited back to your first love can be very helpful. And sometimes that's what, sometimes that's what people who've been married for many years have to learn to do, isn't it? To keep, to keep coming back and saying, okay, I want to rekindle the love that we we had it first and not allowing it to go off the boil. And the church at Ephesus had allowed it to go off the boil. And Jesus said to them, no, I, I want you to come and just, just, just walk with me. Find reasons to talk. Find reasons to just sit in my presence and enjoy being with me. Find an excuse to waste time with me. Jesus invites some of us today to remember our first love, to come back to it, to do the things you did at first when you first met him, to rekindle the desire, the affection that you have for Jesus. So the victorious Christian life is a life that's marked by love. In a second letter, the victorious Christian life takes a different turn. It looks like death. To the church in Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this is the first explicit mention in this letter of the fact that Christians are going to be called to suffer and to even be killed for their faith. And it's a major theme in this book. John mentions it in chapter 1 obliquely, but now it really comes out. I'm calling you to a life of suffering, even martyrdom or death for the faith, Jesus is saying to the church. And it's interesting. Uh, I heard a, a stat recently that suggested across church history that on average... Um, one in 120 people in the Christian faith will have been killed for their faith. Many of them in the 20th century, of course. One in 120. That's at least one of you. Some of you are looking at me, I don't know. And I'm not saying that, that of course, it's the law of averages. It may, it, it, it may not be one of you, but, but you see, see the reality is that it is an integral part of, of, of what Christians have always been called to do. One of the early, uh, early church's best-known martyrs was Polycarp, interestingly, a native of Smyrna. And he was put to death in 156 AD because of his unwillingness, unwillingness to sacrifice to the emperor. And when they asked him to recant his faith, he, he famously responded, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king? Who saved me. There are things that we will endure only by the compelling power of the love of Jesus. But I'm also deeply encouraged by the fact that Jesus both acknowledges our suffering and reveals himself to be Lord over our pain. I know your affection, uh, afflictions and your poverty, he says. I know the slander. There's not, you see, there's nothing Pollyanna about our Savior. He doesn't disregard or play down the reality of our hurts. And he knows our limits and he even knows the purpose for our suffering. So actually, the victorious Christian life doesn't just involve love, it involves death. It involves faithfulness unto death. Somebody who, who may go so far, have to go so far as to, 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 to die for their faith when called upon to do so, even though they could say something to save their own skin. 
In the third letter, what does it look like to be a conqueror? It looks like repentance. The church in Pergamum, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Now, we don't know, but the Nicolaitans, they, we, we know that Balaam, Balaam was teaching that you can eat idle food and, and, and you can practice sexual immorality. We don't much know much more than that. But the point was, for them, the overcoming victorious Christian life in Pergamum meant repentance. It, rec- it meant recognizing that you are continually tempted to fall into sin and just turning around over and over and over again, repenting, which means to turn around, turn from anything that leads to sin, whatever it might be. It might be doctrine, it might be sexuality, it might be diet. Those are the issues here. It could be a whole load of other things. This, the 16th century Protestant Reformation began when Martin Luther wrote a series of theses and posted them on the church door, a church door in Germany. And, and, and the very first one was that the Lord Jesus Christ said that the entire Christian life was to be one of repentance. That was the first one of the 95 theses. The entire Christian life should be one of repentance. Turning away from sin and turning back to Christ in faith. You go, oh gosh, I better stop. I've got that sin. I need to turn around. You go, oh, I got to turn around again because I've done something or I'm tempted to to do this. And actually continually needing to live the life of repentance. I want to go and do that and click on that or follow this or think that way or talk this way about him or her and just over and over again saying, no, I need to turn my back on sin and face the Lord Jesus. The victorious Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not a one-off. It's not something that I did once when I first came to Jesus, but actually a regular posture of just turning, turning away from sin towards the life of Christ. Fourth, the victorious Christian life looks like, and this is going to be a strange one for us because this is a word that our culture uh, thinks is a bad word, but Jesus, in certain contexts, thinks it's a, a good thing. The victorious Christian life looks like intolerance, right? Look at the church at Thyatira. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who is this would-be prophetess who is leading the church into sexual sin and idolatry and, and, and what Jesus la- later refers to as the deep things of Satan, right? Like, I don't know much about what they are, but I know that sounds bad, right? If, 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 if Jesus, if some people call this the deep things of Satan, oh, well, clearly not a good place to go. And Jesus is saying, my problem with you, church in Thyatira, is you tolerate her. You are allowing her to say what she thinks and allowing her to influence the community and you're not dealing with the sin and that tolerance is a problem. So the victorious Christian life in Thyatira would look like a greater level of intolerance. Again, don't mishear me by intolerance. I don't mean violence against people who say or do stuff that you don't like at all. But I do mean that within the church, It is not appropriate for us to tolerate people who are teaching us or teaching others in the community, particularly the new or or, or the vulnerable or whatever, that you say, you know, say, you know, it's okay to worship idols or it's okay to believe, um, you know, all this nonsense or to have sex with whoever you want, whatever it is. You know, that's not okay. You must not tolerate that. 
See, if you want someone to thrive, then you in, are intolerant of the things that would destroy them. That's why we are intolerant of cancer, and we should be, right? You try and destroy it. You try and get it out because we know that if we're not intolerant of it, it spreads. We're intolerant of mold on a loaf of bread, and I need to be intolerant because I love the bread, and I can't love the mold and the bread equally. I have to decide which one I'm going to back here. And Jesus is saying, in your case, the retired, the, the victorious Christian life would actually look like some more, it needs some more intolerance to sin and evil being taught in the congregation. Fifth one, the church in Sardis, the victorious Christian life looks like wakefulness. Being awake, eyes open, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief. Right? People thought this church was alive. They were saying, oh yeah, it's got a great reputation. Jesus says, people, people think you're alive, but you're not. I know you're not. You're dead, and I want you to wake up. It was a dozy church. Oh, oh, that kind of church. It was complacent. It was unaware. It was dead. To be awake is basically to be aware, to know what's going on. But when you're asleep, you're, you're unaware. And the reality is that many people, Christians included, just aren't aware as we go through life. We're, we're unaware of spiritual realities in, the, in our daily, ordinary decisions that we make. What we talk about, the activities we take part in, even the way we interact with other people. We're not living as if there's ever a potential threat. It's, it's, it's complacent. Awakeness is being aware. It's being attuned to the, the realities around you that might pose a threat to your faith, to the faith of both you and other people. Not just breezily, sleepily living life. Oh, it'll be fine. It looks like someone who's not just blindly bumbling along, but someone who is aware of the fact that God has called, what that God has called them to and aware of the spiritual challenges around them. It looks like endurance in the church in Philadelphia. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. A victorious Christian life looks like stickability. It's like, it looks like perseverance. It looks like a long obedience in the same direction. Conquerors are people who keep going. And it looks finally like zeal in the church in Laodicea. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Right? A hot meal and a hot coffee is great. A cold lunch or a, a tepid or, or, you know, chilled lemonade is great, but you get a tepid dinner or a lukewarm a glass of water or a room temperature glass of beer, it's terrible. Jesus confronts Laodicea with, with her spiritual self-satisfaction, complacency, and indifference. John Stott says of this church, perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the church today than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to, to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion 
zeal, heat, fire, passion. These are the qualities we lack today and desperately need. Right? Jesus wants his people to be fiery and hot and passionate and all in, committed. He doesn't want and will spit out lukewarmness, half in, half out, tepid, nominal, compromised, room temperature, would-be Christians. Now, this is challenging. This is a challenging picture of the church. There's a lot of confrontation here in these chapters from the Lord Jesus. The victorious Christian life is not achieved through money, influence, and reputation or anything like that. It is achieved through love, death, repentance, intolerance, wakefulness, endurance, and zeal. And it's costly. And we may not be used to hearing Jesus talk like that to us. But there are two massive sources of encouragement in here to strengthen our resolve and build our faith. And the first is that every letter concludes with a massive promise for those who overcome, for conquerors, for Nikes. Look, look at it. To the one who conquers all, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will be given some of the hidden manna, and I'll give them a white stone with a new name. The one who conquers and keeps my word to the end, I will give authority over the nations, and they will rule them with a rod of iron. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, never blotted out of the book of life. I'll confess their name before the Father. The one who conquers will become a pillar in the temple of my God. Never, they'll never have to go out, and I'll write on them the name of my God. The one who conquers, I will grant with them to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his. That's a pretty amazing list of promises. And that is an encouragement to us as we're thinking, wow, the victorious Christian life sounds expensive. When Jesus is saying, yeah, you got that right. But look at the reward. Look at the inheritance. Look at the, the heritage for those who pursue the victorious Christian life. Look at the things that Jesus wants to give you. That's one source of encouragement. And the other one is what Jesus says in his fiercest letter as it's coming to a close. The most fiery thing he ever says in these letters is to the church in Laodicea. But, but he's telling them, you are lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out if you're not careful. But he does not finish there. Look at what he says as he concludes. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is me. I'm, I'm outside right now knocking. I'm telling you these things because I love you. That's why I tell you these things. That's why I'm speaking so strongly to you, my church. I'm standing outside knocking, waiting for you to open the door and allow me in. And when you do, I want to come in and have a meal with you and you to have a meal with me. I mean, this is not an appeal of an evangelist to non-Christians. This is Jesus showing us the tragedy of living the Christian life apart from intimacy with him. And the evil of having the comforts of this world replacing communion with him. Jesus doesn't want us to be lukewarm for him because he is not lukewarm for us. Jesus loves us with a first love, with a fiery love, with a zealous love. And he is banging on the door outside every church saying, I want to be with you, I love you, and I want to come in and eat with you. So you can celebrate my victory and yours together. 
and live a life shaped by the victory of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, we're going to break bread now. We're going to come and have communion. We're going to have the meal that Jesus gave us and enjoy it together. And as we do that, let's celebrate uh, the victory, the overcoming, the, the, the conquering, uh, the, the nikiness of King Jesus and all of his glory so that we might li- live victorious lives ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the victory of Jesus. And we thank you for the promise of a, of, of a victorious Christian life. We thank you for challenging us, even in these words, to live that kind of life in your name. And we pray that you would lift guilt off of anyone here who who may be under it right now, but you would bring a right level of challenge and correction to those of us who need it, that we might live victorious lives ourselves in and through the victory that Jesus has won for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.